Welcome to episode 137 of the Daniel Yoris Podcast with today's guest, Dr. Jay Shaw. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Joined here today by Dr. Jay Shaw. Jay, thanks for being here. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. It's great to be here. I actually, of all the podcast episodes that I've done, we haven't really done one that's specific to blood pressure and hypertension. So I'm actually really interested interested to speak with you today because it's one of these topics that it kind of comes up. I mean, everyone everyone knows someone who has high blood pressure. Probably many people themselves listening have high blood pressure or someone very close to them does. I think what's the stat? It's one in two Americans, something like that, suffer from oh, yeah. hypertension. One in two Americans over the age of 65, 130 million total Americans in the US, 1.4 billion in the world. So you're right. Everyone yeah. either either has it or knows someone very easily or close to them that, that has it significantly. Right. And so it's something that impacts so much. And I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but no one dies of just high blood pressure. Like that's not a thing that kills someone, but it, it contributes to a lot of other negative health outcomes and, and things that can lead to, to death and other conditions. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the one of the things that makes both both people, but also um, physicians um, like myself, and you know, uh, I'm a cardiologist, and and it makes all of us in in healthcare sort of complacent hmm. because it's first of all, it doesn't cause any significant discomfort. You, you don't feel it when you have significant high blood pressure. It's not like back pain or knee pain or chest pain or shortness of breath or something happening. So. You can't feel it. So oftentimes it goes on for years, even decades without somebody knowing that they have it. But paradoxically, that's the most crucial time because that's how blood pressure does its damage. Over It does its damage over long periods of time in a fairly silent way. And then eventually it causes enough underlying vascular damage to cause some major event. And there are many, many different organ systems that it affects, can affect. And so... The WHO estimates that about 18 million people die attributable to hypertension. But you're right. They don't die on the death certificate isn't written hypertension. It's usually written stroke, heart attack, heart failure, arrhythmia, kidney failure, something like that. But the primary underlying cause of that eventual cause of death oftentimes is hypertension or high blood pressure. Right. And I think it, it's fair to say, you know, we shouldn't we're not saying that to kind of scare anyone or whatever, but it's just like, this is why you, you should be paying attention to this conversation. Presumably you've clicked on this episode and you're listening because you're, you're interested yeah. or the, you know, some words caught your attention or something, but this is why it's such a big deal, even though it's maybe not forefront news. But before we kind of get into the, into the nitty gritties, can you introduce yourself? Just let people know kind of who you are, what is it you do just to set the stage for. Sure. Daniel. Yeah, my name is Jay Shah. I'm a cardiologist. I practice in the U S for now 12 years, uh, uh, I run my own practice and started that uh, from scratch. I trained it and worked at Masters General Hospital. And the most recently, I was working at the Mayo Clinic. Um, and then for the last two years, I have been the chief medical officer of a Swiss company called Actia that's working specifically in the space of hypertension. Right. And so what does Actia do? So Actia is a combination of a technology um, and I can go into details of it, but it's a combination of a technology using a device, but also software on somebody's smartphone, as well as their healthcare organization's uh, electronic interface. And what it does, the primary technological innovation that our founders really came up with was an ability to using a fairly simple device and optical signals and light sensors is to measure and monitor blood pressure on a consistent basis over long periods of time, totally passively and automatically. So most people are familiar with the traditional way to check blood pressures, which is using a cuff where you have to sit down. And and to, to use a cuff properly, you have to, if you actually want to do it properly, there's an inordinate amount of steps to actually take an accurate cuff measurement. And so if anybody actually reads the guidelines of how to take a cuff measurement of blood pressure, this is the... This is how you're supposed to do it. You have to sit in a quiet room for five minutes with your back against a chair and your feet against the floor. You have to breathe deeply and quietly. You have to have no sound around you. You can't talk to anyone. No one can talk to you. You have to have an empty bowel, empty bladder. You can't have eaten for the last 30 minutes. You can't have exercise. No caffeine, no smoking, no alcohol. 
no noise around you. Your arm has to be uh, free of clothing. And then you can check your blood pressure on time. And so it's, it's highly cumbersome and it's really not a convenient thing to do, and which is why majority of people, even who have high blood pressure, don't check their blood pressure very often. And so one of the primary issues with hypertension is that both people who have it, as well as physicians and healthcare organizations who are trying to manage it, are operating in an almost complete lack of data. And so the primary technological innovation of Actia is that by just putting this on uh, and going through a, f- a five-minute sort of calibration step once a month, you can daily get about, on average, 27 blood pressure readings per day. And you don't have to do anything other than just wear it. You don't have to remember to do anything. You don't have to push a button. You don't have to sit in a position. And so it really gives... Uh, the user and the physician a much more continual longitudinal sort of understanding of their blood pressure patterns, which fluctuates continuously, blood pressure continuously changes. And it gives you that longitudinal picture of what is your blood pressure doing over long periods of time that is much more applicable and useful from, you know, to look at how is your blood pressure affecting your body than just a one one point once and you know one episodic reading with a cuff every you know so often so that's the primary technological innovation and the software that's built around it is all to deliver that data and information to the users and the physicians right and and a nice comparison i think to this which people who listen may be more familiar with is even just tracking one's body weight i'm an advocate of if you're trying to lose weight you know you track your body weight every day because then we, we with more data points we rid the the data of more fluctuations like if i have a you know a, a giant dinner and chocolate cake and all this stuff and i weigh myself the next morning of course my weight is going to be higher because weight fluctuates and that's normal and that's fine but your blood pressure fluctuates even more and even greater and even faster than your than your weight does. So having more measurements at more times throughout the day and more often would certainly be better to create an accurate picture of what's actually going on. Well, it solves the problem of the, you know, lack of regular cuffs being a fairly easy and and friendly to use device, but it also really directly goes to what we talked about initially is that blood pressure does its damage over long periods of time. So one measurement at one point in time, once a day or even once a week, are really fairly inadequate to really assess that sort of consistency of your blood pressure over long periods of time. But it's just what we've always done because the tools that we've had at our disposal have just been built for that one uh, episodic reading. Well, this is something that is sort of a quantum leap ahead, uh, looking at that longitudinal consistency. Right. So in your opinion then, before the invention of of this technology and before its widespread adoption, what are some of the things that we're missing or are inadequate in the treatment of blood pressure, either high or low hypertension uh, or hypotension, but um, what's missing, what's inadequate with the way that we're treating uh, these conditions now? Well, there's lots, unfortunately, (laughs) just to give you some idea about that. Um, Even though, you know, we understand high blood pressure, we understand its damage that it does, we understand how to treat it, we understand lifestyle interventions that work, and we understand that we have good, ready, cheap, effective medications that work as well, and we have ready availability of fairly inexpensive cuffs as well. Even despite all those things being true, the global control rates of hypertension, meaning the num- the percentage of people who have high blood pressure, who have it under control by, as defined by the professional societies, expert societies, is 20%. Wow. One in five. And it's getting worse, by the way, not getting better. And in the US, that number is not much better. It's 26%. So even in fairly developed countries, um, the the quality of management of hypertension is still exceedingly poor. Um, uh, there's lots of reasons for that. Um, but to focus on the ones that that we can probably make a difference on today is we talked about just the lack of data, right, with traditional tools. Well, that gets at a lot of aspects of the continuum of blood pressure. Like, for example, we talked about how you can go for years or decades without even knowing that you have a disease. 
without even understanding that there is a problem because people generally don't measure their blood pressure if they feel well and they're not going to the physician and they're not told that they should check their blood pressure on a routine basis. So in that realm, in the screening diagnosis and sort of awareness of high blood pressure or hypertension, this technology plays a very clear and easy to understand role in picking up undiagnosed or screening for uh, hypertension where it previously just hasn't been, um, you know, the person hasn't been aware of it. And then in the diagnosis itself, the formal diagnosis, which the formal diagnosis requires in a visit with a physician, an assessment, an exam, a history, a physical, all these things. But the diagnosis requires at least two separate assessments of blood pressure that are high by their definition, and also that they have to believe that there isn't some other cause of that hypertension. The physician has to say, okay, well, we've ruled out all these other things. This is really just the usual, what's called primary hypertension. Well, even collecting that data and presenting it to the physician is a fairly significant lift. And there have been many studies done where people have gone for years in fairly sophisticated healthcare systems, clearly meeting the criteria for hypertension and never got labeled properly, never were actually formally diagnosed. Another example is this phenomenon of white coat hypertension, which is very confusing for physicians. People come into the office, they're nervous, they're anxious, they don't know, they're scared, they're kind of tense. So when they're cuffed, when the, the, you know, in the office, when you take a blood pressure, it's really high. But then at home, anytime it's taken, it seems normal. This is a phenomenon called white coat hypertension that happens in up to 25 to 35% of people. But without somebody who goes home and diligently measures their blood pressure on a routine basis with a cuff, there's no way to differentiate between white coat hypertension and actual hypertension. Yeah. So even in this, just in making a formal diagnosis, we don't have enough data. And again, this is where uh, Actia has a clear value proposition. And then you go, you go to treatment and monitoring meaning seeing the effect of whatever intervention that the physician has recommended or the patient is, is trying to, to undertake some sort of lifestyle or and or medications. How do you measure the effect of those interventions? Well, the only way to measure the effect is to consistently measure the blood pressure and see what happens over time. And again, that's an area of great difficulty. And even after, you know, a medication might be started, we might go easily, physicians might go a year or more before they actually get any more data points to see, is that medication working? Is that lifestyle intervention making a difference? And so it leads to very poor sort of either undertreatment of blood pressure, sometimes overtreatment of blood pressure because you don't really know what the data is. So in every facet of blood pressure on sort of a, a patient journey from awareness, diagnosis, treatment, monitoring, every facet, there's clear and massive opportunity for improvement. Right. Would it be accurate to say then that the reason for some of the difficulty is because in order to heal or, or treat hypertension, there must be a multifactorial approach, including potentially various life, multiple lifestyle changes and or drugs, and not a single one of those things can solve the issue. It's not as straightforward as like, you know, infection, right. uh, antibiotic. antibiotic. It's not, yeah. it's not that, it's Correct. not that straightforward, right? So there's a lot of things that have to happen and who knows which one is working, how, how much the patient is actually doing the lifestyle intervention that they've been told or coached on, right? You got it. And what's even more complicated is that, um, you know, in all healthcare systems across the world, physicians are fairly limited for time. Anyone who's been to the doctor's office can clearly tell that is the case. And, and so there is a very standard list of lifestyle interventions that has been long known to be effective uh, for the general population, not for an individual person, but just generally for people who have hypertension. And guess what? When What happens when you go into a physician's office and they make that diagnosis and they say, okay, look, this person has hypertension. Well, almost like regurgitation of that of those seven lifestyle factors they will just say okay daniel well you know you need to lose weight you need to exercise more you need to eat a better diet you need to have less sodium you need to drink less alcohol you need to sleep better and they'll give you seven and i'm guilty of this too seven fairly um 
simple sounding lifestyle interventions, but actually to an individual person, each one of those can be dramatic lifestyle change. Even just weight loss, just that by itself, how difficult is it? We all know. I mean, anyone who struggled with their weight understands. Like, it's exceedingly difficult. And so in 15 minutes, you're going to get seven of these fairly significant lifestyle changes and then maybe a medication on top of that. Now, as a behavioral science uh, science uh, sort of advocate, it just is that are those seven recommended interventions actually going to, you know, is that person actually going to do them? No, they're not even going to listen to them. Yeah. They'll say, wow, each one of those is going to take like months, if not years to actually achieve. How am I going to do all of these things? Uh, so it oftentimes just goes nowhere. And, and, and part of that is there's no individualization of blood pressure uh, treatments at all. Everyone gets the same treatment, the same recommendations by and large. There's some very few exceptions, but by and large, everyone gets the same laundry list. And we don't know who's going to respond to sodium reduction versus alcohol reduction versus weight loss. We have no idea. So the only way to know is by it's just simple test and measure, test and measure, test and measure. Well, here, when you have a device that, and a technology that provides sort of a continuous type of monitoring, you can understand the effect of a, of a, of an intervention much quicker mm-hmm. than and easier than if someone's trying to take cuff readings every so often and they really struggle to see a cause and effect. And I've seen this time and time again in the office and as a physician, you recommend something, they say, doc, I'm trying, but I don't honestly see much of a difference here. And you say, well, how often do you take a blood pressure measurement? Well, maybe every few weeks, maybe a month or two. I take it every now and then. Nobody comes in with readings. There's not a lot of charts or data. So how do you know? It's really impossible to know. And then on top of that, all those interventions are for just general population. We don't know what Daniel is going to respond to. And it's very true. We also know that, like, for example, sodium reduction is the best example. We recommend this to everybody. Everyone understands, well, you got to reduce salt, even though that's exceedingly difficult because sodium's in everything we eat. So let's say somebody actually tries and, and really puts their mind behind that and tries to reduce their sodium intake. Nobody tells you that only 50% of people are salt sensitive when it comes to blood pressure. Mm-hmm. So for fully half of those people we're recommending it to, we know it's not going to make any difference. Right. But we're going to recommend it anyway because what else are we going to say? It's just part of the guidelines. It's part of the standard sort of thing. So that's, you know, we don't have a level of personalization or individualization because we really don't have a lack. We, we don't have granular data on each person, which is exactly what our company has really changed. Mm-hmm. And so if someone does have their own individual data, they're empowered with that data, they can see how one intervention affects or doesn't affect their blood pressure. And so they can say, okay, that didn't work. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next intervention. I'm going to forget this one. I'm going to move on to the next one because maybe that's going to actually do something for me. Um, and so it gets at a much, uh, a much more personalized uh, approach. The individualization of this approach seems to be the biggest missing piece to me as someone who's not in the medical field, but you know, just a, straight, uh, a trainer, just kind of on the on the edge here, I guess. But it's like there's the things, these lifestyle interventions, they're not new. No one walking out of that doctor's office is like, oh, I'm shocked that he told me to lose weight. I'm shocked that they told me I should, I should quit smoking. Like no, no one's surprised at these things, right? We all, this is a drama I've been beating for a while. It's like everyone, we all know the things that we should be doing. It's just whether or not we're actually going to do them and, and what are the roadblocks in our individual life, which are less about knowledge and more about like your personality, your, your lifestyle, what's your home life, your work life, you know, all these like individual yeah. things that make you, yeah. you. Um, and that's where like, you know, understanding which of the, um, which of the interventions you can actually implement and to what degree and to what degree it would be necessary. Like the salt one, I think is an interesting one. It's been a thing that's, you know, come up more recently with a lot of, there's, you know, companies selling salt packets now. And then it's like, well, 
hey, this is great for hydration, but like for years and years, we've been told to not eat, <laughs> not, not eat salts. So like which, which one is it? And it's like, right. well, the, the reduction of, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's like the reduction of salt maybe works again in 50% of people, like you said, but also only makes sense if you're someone who is eating a ton of sodium anyways. If exactly. you already eat a relatively low sodium diet, reducing that is not going to help your blood pressure. In fact, it may cause other problems, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, it's, I would say it's, it does take a significant reduction to see an effect. And mm. there are lots of people who do have a very high sodium intake. Of course. But again, if you don't track it and you don't count the sodium, you have no real idea yeah. how much <laughs> yeah. sodium you're, you're actually consuming. Um, and yeah, I think that the, that lack of, lack of personalization is one of, um, you know, it's really the next major frontier in medicine because and some some ask, some parts of medicine have gone there have actually are succeeding in there. Oncology is a good example of that, um, where they're where they're doing genetic testing and then designing a treatment based on that. That's a really good example because that they're at the forefront of that. But for the vast majority of the rest of medicine, it's been we've been built a scientific literature that where the clinical trials and the evidence that it underpins our current recommendations has. It's based on large population type studies, not individualization or not to say who individually is going to benefit. You can say on average, some a population will benefit if we do this intervention, but that, that doesn't necessarily make much difference to you or me or my patient or the next person or the next person, but they want to know about them. And that's not, we've never been able to get down to that level in our evidence and scientific treatment be like you as a trainer. This is a really good, I think, analogy. It's like you don't give the same uh, routine of of training and exercise to every single client. That would be ridiculous. You know, if someone comes in, they're very, very athletic and they they're very used to uh, training. You're going to give them a much higher level than someone who's brand new to the gym and has never had done weight training before. You're going to be at a markedly different level. We don't do that in medicine. Everyone gets the same um, line, you know, most of the time. So it's um. Yeah, that is a. Yeah, the, the key is that the principles would remain the same. Like even in the training example, like a right. super athletic person, they're still going to train. They're going to their their nutrition guidance is going to be more or less the same as as a as an individual as a, a more of a beginner. Like you know, eating proteins, controlling calories. You know, right. eating, eating your vegetables, drinking water. Like all the principles remain right. equal, but it's the it's the individual. Um, small differences that really make it work or not work. Right, right. telling someone who has a has a you know, a bad ankle or a bad hip or something. Hey, you've got to start walking, you know, 15,000 right. steps a day. It's like, well, you know, that's not really yeah. great advice for that individual. Right. Maybe good advice for someone else, but for them, that's, right. that's completely useless because it's not going to, it's not going to work. Right. Yeah. So I guess, so I, is there any of the, of the interventions that now this is, you know, going back on what we just said, but assuming that someone didn't have any major roadblocks, like they didn't have a, you know, a bad hip or something like that, that prevented them from moving. Is there, are there any of the interventions that are, maybe more powerful than than any of the others where you would typically start? Or is this, again, just it's got to, it depends on the individual? I mean, you can sometimes, based on just a history, um, taking a history of that person, kind of, kind of have some suspicions that some some individuals, or that sometimes there's like, it's really easy. Someone's mm-hmm. drinking 24 beers a day. That's the place to start. <laughs> right. But like the number of people that where that's the case is very small. Um, so the answer is to your question is most often no. It's not easy to try to figure that out as like what one which intervention might be more um, useful to that person. Which is again, if you have if you empower the person with a tool to say, okay, here are six interventions, but don't do them all at once. Just do one at a time for one month and see what happens with your blood pressure, monitoring and see so you can understand, has it made a difference? How are you making an improvement? How much of an improvement is it? And then go on to the next intervention and kind of do this sort of simplistic personal testing. What makes a difference for me? So I know that alcohol, sleep and exercise make the biggest difference for my blood pressure, but not so much sodium and I'm not a smoker, so it doesn't even apply. So. These are the kind of things that somebody can actually do. And if they have, if they are empowered with a tool to give them feedback, digital feedback. Mm-hmm. 
um, because they don't have symptoms that will give them feedback. Right. And so that you can you can create feedback based on this um, this data. Right. It's I mean it's really like coaching one oh one. It's like, okay, we've got a lot of variables to to potentially manipulate. Let's kind of meet the meet the the client, the patient, the whoever, mm-hmm. where they are and like start with kind of, you know, path of least resistance that mm-hmm. we're open to and, and willing and able to start carrying exactly. out and then start there and then assess and then, you know, add and, and change and progress as you, as, as right. you go along. It's, it's like, it's very simplistic. That's the basis of coaching and anything, not, not just health and fitness, but you know, business right. and everything else. Yep. Yep. I mean, I think that in, when it's done really well as a physician, I'm, you know, many times have felt this. It's like when I've really felt like I've made a difference in a person's life, sometimes it's like obvious, like they had a heart attack and we did something and okay. But those are acute events. But most of the time where I've really felt like somebody has really gained from interacting with me or a clinician and a physician in the system is where they leave feeling empowered to do it themselves. Because that's that for chronic disease, that's ninety nine percent of the game. They don't sit in a physician's office, you know, for more than thirty minutes in a year. Right. So for a disease that's always present, always there, always uh, doing something, you know, they have to be in control. The person has to take control of that to own it, and and we as physicians give them the knowledge and empower them and hopefully give them some tools, technology, education, and then empower them to, to, to make those changes and to understand for themselves how, how to improve their own disease. Right. That makes total sense to me. I mean, they're, they're the ones who have to live their life. So as much as you, the physician, the trainer, the coach, the nurse, the whoever can like tell them as many things as you, as you want, like if they're not doing it, you're not going to be there all the time to hold their hand and like do all the things with them. So they have to really, there's a huge education component to it as well, which, which I think, you know, then ties into, to, to the product is like, the education is kind of given to them and with them all the time because they're exactly. fed more fed more data. Like I, I wear not this device, but I wear an aura ring for for tracking sleep, right? So I you know I for me it was more just curiosity. Like sleep is not something I've ever struggled with. But having that data, you know, in my face and kind of all the time is like, oh, I'm been yep. made aware of these things and like you don't want to there's some gamification to it, right? Of where it's like, sure. hey, I don't want to see a I don't want to see a bad score. So what can I do to get a better score? Exactly. And that and that, you know, you know, immature or not, like it has the the correct the correct implications of like you mm-hmm. know acting in in good behavior. So I think that there's there's a lot to be said with the wearables as well. You know, people are almost everyone has a wearable of of some kind now, and if they can all you know give us data that we actually act on, but that's the key is you actually have to act on it. Yeah, you have to act on it. But I do think that that's sort of like it's always been the promise of this sort of digital health space of of really allowing millions of people across the world access to knowledge. That's mm. really why people come to see a physician. They don't come for a procedure, they don't medicine, they don't come for a test. They they come for knowledge. They have questions and they want knowledge. They want you know answers generally or at least knowledge of how to answer that question. And and that's where, you know, using our medical grade device this is not just like a simple consumer electronic this is a medical device, but then pairing it with knowledge that's given to them on an ongoing basis in digestible formats that's on something that's going to be with them far more often than I'm with them is really how you try to at least give them the tools to change behavior. And then, but obviously, ultimately, it's up to them. But, you know, at least hopefully they have the tools. Yeah, I, I really like the content of it. I mean, one thing I'm super big on in my own coaching is just awareness of what it is that one is doing like how many steps are you actually getting in a day what are you actually eating you know everyone says they they eat pretty well but like probably not (laughs) right right? Uh, you wouldn't be x amount of pounds overweight if you were eating pretty well right so it's like you got to figure out what you're actually doing and then we can start to make changes and this is just another one of those things like ah you know i think my blood pressure is pretty good well like well is it like you know exactly right right. most people don't know (laughs) yeah most people have no idea so in, in speaking about the interventions and a little bit more kind of like exercise and whatnot related, can you talk a little bit about how exercise actually does impact blood pressure? And and I think the way I want to frame this or, or kind of set you up for this is that 
I think a common thing that I've heard from people is like, well, exercising raises my blood pressure. Like when I go to the gym and I, and I run and I lift weights and whatever, like my blood pressure is going up, like, isn't that bad. But then like, you know, prolonged exercise does improve our blood pressure. And this is a thing that's known. This is not me making it up. So can you talk a little bit about how that happens and how to kind of maybe describe that for someone who may be in that confusion yeah. zone right now? So the, there, there are two sort of concepts or at least two different windows of time of looking at blood pressure. And so the, the, what most people see and understand is what is your blood pressure at the exact moment in time when you're checking it. But again, going back to that concept of, of compare that to what is your blood pressure consistently over weeks, months, years, decades, truly that's really what you care about. That's what, that's how blood pressure causes its damage. Now, going to your question, in the short term, when you exercise, generally any type of significant exercise, whether it's aerobic or strength training, your blood pressure will go up. During the actual exercise, during the 30 minutes or 40 minutes or 60 minutes that you're actually doing it, your blood pressure goes up. That's a normal physiologic increase of, ex of blood pressure most of the time. Sometimes it's excessive. If someone's starting from a high baseline, it might go too high. But the point is, is it rises in everyone as a normal physiologic response to your body's need for more circulation of blood, to your muscles, to your heart, to your brain, everywhere, to your body. So that's normal. Um, and that isn't in a contradiction to consistent, sustained exercise, particularly aerobic exercise over long periods of time, weeks, months, and years leads to a lower and better blood pressure, but not during exercise, just during resting periods at those other times. And remember what we described in the initial very first part of our conversation, how are you supposed to check a blood pressure using a traditional cuff? Well, you're supposed to do it when you're sitting, resting, quiet, calm, nothing's going on. So that's the difference. They're not contradictory. It's just you're talking about measuring blood pressure at two different very different times. If you measure blood pressure immediately during a, some sort of strenuous exercise, it will be high. It's supposed to be high. <laughs> but, but you know, over long periods of time, consistent exercise will create a better blood pressure pattern and profile. And so that's, again, the, the difference at looking at blood pressure in a very small, narrow window, which is usually less important than a consistent long-term view which is really what our perspective is, is what matters most. Is it fair to say that part of the improvement of exercise over time in regards to your blood pressure is due to the um, increased efficiency of the mechanical aspect of the cardiorespiratory system? So your heart's ability to pump blood, the, the veins and arteries ability to push blood through the body where there's like a, you know, the same as strength training. I, you know, do curls, my biceps get bigger. If I work my cardiorespiratory system more, it gets more efficient. And so therefore my blood pressure doesn't need to be as great to get blood around my body. Is that, is that an overly simplistic way to explain it? Well, I think in general terms, that's correct. There's like a number of sophisticated, sure. you know, underlying <laughs> biochemical mechanisms and the vascular tone and how the heart, uh, the cardiac efficiency and the volume of the heart as it pumps, all those things. But the basic underlying point is, it is easier for your body to circulate blood to get oxygen and nutrients to all the organs that need to if you consistently exercise right. uh, and particularly aerobic exercise. Right. So in, in regards to the, the aerobic exercise, are there particular types? Hit, everyone loves to do hit, hit classes and it's like fun and whatever. What is really the difference between doing, you know, the more intense, the intervals, sprints or like the slow, steady zone two kind of cardio? Where should people be be going with that probably the answer is like you know whatever is good for you like just do your thing anything's better than nothing but in a perfect yeah. world what would be what would be ideal um i think there's probably a difference there of like what people want to get out of their exercise but if you focus it specifically on cardiovascular uh health let's just eliminate all other reasons to exercise and why <laughs> people do different things but um for a minute for cardiovascular health the primary thing that matters is a sustained aerobic activity for at least 30 minutes in a single uh, interval and generally at least three hours a week. 
So whatever it is you're doing, whether it's brisk walking, running, jogging, hit, uh, aerobics, whatever, do it in a sustained way. So generally, there's no target heart rate, but just generally having that sustained exertion for at least 30 minutes at one period of time and then three, you know, generally three hours a week or more. That's really what seems to matter the most in terms of um, cardiovascular specific health. Um, then, then you have to like, there's all kinds of other variables of why are people training and what are they trying to do and get out of them. That's all kind of different. But just, uh, just for that cardiovascular health, I think that's the general message that I would give the vast majority of people. Um, it doesn't require long endurance training. It doesn't really require you to be, you know, like some elite CrossFit athlete or something like that. I mean, if someone goes walking for 30 to 60 minutes every day, that is among the best exercise there is. So just do that. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, you're, you're spot on, I think, with saying that there are so many other reasons why people exercise and like, I don't know a single person who's like sole purpose of exercising is like to improve their blood pressure. And like, that's right. the only thing that they care about and they legitimately don't care about anything else like that. That person doesn't, doesn't exist. And so to think about like, Oh, what is the exact perfect thing? And, and this is a you know, fault of mine. And my questioning here is like, it's probably just an incomplete thought. And so the, the take home message really is like, Hey, as long as you're exercising, your heart rate is elevated above your resting, then, you know, do that for three hours a week. And like the particulars matter a lot less and you know take into consideration all the other things that you care about right. as well to, to manipulate those variables exactly i would agree with that yeah nice so what are some other things then that impact our blood pressure maybe besides some of the obvious stuff like being overweight smoking alcohol uh, not exercising what are some of those other things so sleep is a big one um and there are lots of uh, things we could talk about in sleep, but getting the first one is just getting enough sleep, getting enough high quality sleep, um, getting sleep regularly, routinely, uh, at certain, you know, very fixed sort of times of day where you're not so erratic in your sleep schedule, if that's possible in your life and your work and things. But, but for the most of us, it is. Um, it, you know, I think that's a dramatically underestimated, uh, part of both cardiovascular health as well as blood pressure. Um, poor sleep has shown to be dramatically impact cardiovascular health, raise your, can raise your blood pressure, can cause and lead to, um, excessive weight gain or difficulty losing weight, um, all kinds of things. And then, of course, you know, um, mental disorders as well. So really just paying attention to sleep and focusing on how to make it as good as possible. Um, and then, of course, on top of that are even more complex sleep disorders like sleep apnea. Now, sleep apnea is exceedingly common and underdiagnosed. And sleep apnea is a, is a disorder wherein somebody stops breathing routinely and repetitively at night. People generally know that, like, there's some treatment where somebody wears a mask and that's what you have. That's not always the case, by the way, but, but that those people may have, do have sleep apnea, but there's plenty of people who have just never been diagnosed. And sleep apnea is a strong contributor to high blood pressure and many other cardiovascular events. So sleep, I think, is a very important one um, that plays a significant role. And um, I think the, the, the other one, I mean, I think we mentioned it, it's alcohol. It's not a trivial thing. Um, it's the amount of alcohol consumption has generally risen, certainly more since the pandemic. Um, and so that is clearly, um, you know, alcohol can directly raise your blood pressure, obviously can cause you to gain weight. And there's significant effects on sleep as well. Many people drink more at night, so it can lead to reduced sleep quality as well. So there's, there's a lot of, um, unknowns there. I think on, not unknowns, but, uh, an underestimate of how much that can affect your blood pressure and, um, through multiple, uh, avenues. So I think those are the two that I would probably highlight, um, that are very, yeah, under, underestimated. Yeah. Can you talk about how sleep does affect it? I mean, I'm, I know that it's like a lot of different ways, but is there a specific mechanism or is it more such that poor quality sleep is going to have this like big trickle down effect on all of your health 
markers and like there's it's not like a direct thing that's like oh it just affects your your blood pressure it affects everything and then all of that stuff kind of the interplay of this multitude of factors affects your blood pressure negatively is it more that or is there something more specific than that um there's actually probably both so the first part which you said it affects a number of things is true but i think it also um directly affects cortisol levels in your body which is your stress hormone quote unquote Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, leads to multiple different um, – it's a steroid-type hormone. So it, it leads to multiple different sort of end effects. And one of them can be gaining weight and another one can be you know sort of persistently higher blood pressures. And so th- there's, there's two effects. There's, there can be a direct biochemical effect through sort of uh, this cortisol mechanisms – but then there's all these other effects that sort of lead to multiple different factors that then, of course, contribute to um, blood pressure. So I think it's it's hard to separate those out, but they're they're both. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, makes sense. Like sleep. Anyone who listens to this podcast is not new to the fact that like sleep is is healthy for you. We've talked about it a number of times, and I mean, unless you like, unless you live under a rock, you, you know that sleep is sleep is healthy right. for you, and you should be getting plenty of sleep and regular sleep, and like, and all these and all these things, right? So, but just understanding that, and, and I think sometimes for some people, it, it can be similar to the whole thing with blood pressure. Is like, oh yeah, I know sleep is important, but like, why? It's like, well, the list of why is important is like unbelievably long. We'd be here for seven right. hours listing off all those things, and most of which the general population, unless they have a medical degree, would not understand. Right. And so to say all those things is not really helpful, but then also at the same time, be like, yeah, sleep is good for you. It's like the same right. as, you know, right. when you were in kindergarten, your mom's yeah. like, hey, eat your vegetables. Like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, it's, <laughs> it's good for you, but we don't really know why. But we, yeah. I think just, you know, this is where coming back to the data really makes a lot of sense where you know that if you have something that's tracking your data and and mm. you get a couple nights of bad sleep and you say, hey, like my blood pressure is all crazy. Let me just see yeah. what happens if I sleep a little bit better. Try to sleep better. What do you know? It's going to yeah. start to improve. Yeah, right? yeah, like for magic. sure it does. Yeah. <laughs> then yeah. then the, the other interesting one is alcohol. It's not something we talk about a lot. And again, we all know that we probably shouldn't be drinking too much and like and all this stuff. Is there is there a more direct mechanism of effect of alcohol on blood pressure or is again a bunch of downstream you know trickling effects well it's kind of um a little bit paradoxical because people will also say well i heard also heard that like a glass of red wine is can be good for you but again it's this it's the idea of it's an alcohol it has to do with moderation so in in very small quantities in and and red wine is is one of the examples doesn't necessarily directly lower blood pressure. It's kind of convoluted data, but it does have some implication of benefit for a cardiovascular system and cardiovascular disease. But in those studies, we're talking about like one glass of red wine a day, not any more than that. So for an adult man, generally the recommendation is no more than two drinks a day, two drinks, two standard drinks, which is Two 12 ounce beers, two six ounce uh, glasses of wine, you know, one one ounce shot of alcohol, um, no more than that. So once you start exceeding that level, then I think you start seeing sort of the toxic effects of alcohol uh, on many different organs, but and, and on, the, on the blood pressure side, a direct raise in blood pressure. Yeah. And and also that recommendation doesn't come with an accompaniment of snacks or right. staying up late or <laughs> yeah, other stuff. It's like, oh, things. it was just, you know, it was just one glass of wine, but you also had a, you know, an entire bag of chips yeah. and you stayed up an hour too right. late and you slept poorly and you, you know, yes. you, you scrolled in your phone and you argued with your spouse and like, you know, it doesn't, yes. all of those things kind of, kind of play oh, a role. They and all so, matter. Yeah. yeah you're right. and, and this is, I think. It's just part of the difficulty is that there's so many things that impact our blood pressure that it's hard to like control for all of them and you can't yes. control for all of them. So it's like, as long as you move the big rocks, everything else will sort of fall into place and therefore like should be, should be fine. And in the end, even if someone is as diligent as possible, and I've seen this many, many times, like really healthy, doing everything possible that they can do, they still have high blood pressure. I mean, I've seen marathon elite athletes have high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. So at some in some respects, we talk about lifestyle interventions, but that's for for some people, for a lot of people actually, there's a limit to the effect of those lifestyle interventions. And sometimes it's just it's just going to have high blood pressure. And then you know you need to turn to medications and other things. So um, I think just an understanding of that 
And, and not to say that, oh, I failed if I need medication. That's not how it is. It's just, it's just, there's a limit to some of these uh, lifestyle interventions. Um, even for the, the most well-intentioned and the most hardworking of us. Right. And it's not impossible to imagine that someone has something definitely like wrong and not by no fault of their own, but just like due to their genetics or luck or whatever, yeah. something, yeah. something is not working efficiently in their system right. that no matter how many lifestyle interventions they implement and they live quote unquote perfect, they're still right. going to have some issues. But I think, you know, to qualify that once again is like, most people are, are, are not in that boat like that. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that is a few, few, those people yeah. are few and far between. And so turning to medication as your first option may not be the best thing if you're not even trying to do the, the lifestyle intervention, because again, correct me if I'm wrong, but the medication alone in the absence of any lifestyle mod- modification is not going to solve the problem. Yeah. I mean, we, we, by definition, when a physician start talking about medications, they should have exhausted the lifestyle interventions first. Sure. But or the blood pressure is at such a high level that it's not necessarily safe to wait to start medications. Right. So then at that point you're you're trying both at the same time. It's like, okay, take a medicine, let's bring it down some now, but also at the same time here, let's really start on the lifestyle intervention to see if that can make a difference. So you could do both. Um, but yeah, they they're generally hand in hand. Nobody, you know, by guidelines and expert recommendations, are never just medications. Don't even talk about um, lifestyle. Yeah, you 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 would hope so, but again, it comes back to the availability and and the time, time availability really yeah. of the of the medical systems. Like you've got seven minutes to make an appointment, and you're going to run through this laundry list of lifestyle interventions with no yeah. follow up ability. And again, it's not really the fault of anyone's own. It's just the way the system is in in Canada here in in the U.S. and in most of the world. That's that's how it is. And so sometimes giving people just a pill is is safer and and sometimes yep. more effective. I know my grandparents like. Yeah. They're not interested in changing their life. They're, like, right. they're in their eighties. Right. Like, I remember my right. grandfather went to the doctor once. This is a number of years ago, and he said, "Oh, you know, I, he came back and he goes. Uh, he told me I gotta, you know, drink less coffee and eat a little bit less pasta and you know do this, that, and the other thing." And I said, "Okay, so are you gonna do it?" He goes, "Of course not." He said they should have. They should have told me to do that fifty years ago. Like right. I'm seventy, whatever now. Yeah. If, if I'm gonna do those yeah. things, just put me in the ground now, right? And you know, it's it's it's, it's funny, but he's also untrue. he's also correct, right? Like he's yeah. not gonna make a giant yeah. lifestyle change. Yeah. At his age, should he like probably, but the reality is he's not. So he's just going to take a pill and hope for the best. Well, I think that's where that's where the traditional healthcare systems kind of miss the boat entirely. Because, like you said, those interventions should happen when you're 30, when you're 20, when you're 40. Those are the times to really make a difference. That's you know, blood pressure is a cardinal example of that. That's generally when high blood pressure starts is in 30s, 40s of life. People don't generally know about it for years until they're 50 and 60. And those decades have gone by. The effects have started to occur already. They've kind of missed the boat. And, and I think this is where really traditional healthcare is just not built for proactive, preventive, longitudinal, scalable care. It's not built for that. It's never been designed for that. It's been designed for when you have a problem, there's, there's some treatment for that. Um, when you have a heart attack, okay, there are good treatments. When you need bypass surgery, we know how to do that. But not, can you prevent bypass surgery? Right, right. And I think that that's one of the big advantages of of products like Actia is like it gets younger people more involved earlier because it's just because it's available, right? Like you Mm -hmm. said, there's there's no symptoms. You don't feel anything. And if you just become aware of it, you're way more pliable for lack of a better word when you're when you're younger both both you know behaviorally to make changes in your life and also physically like the changes you make may have greater effect exactly when you're when you're younger so if you can get it get on in control of it at an earlier age then you don't you may avoid these issues when you're 70 80 90 years old exactly I, and i do think that that has it's a combination of technological advancement as well as generational willingness to try these things and an interest in it right uh, with all the, you know, digital stuff that we use every day, people of that generation, of our generation of 30, 40, 50, even 60-year-olds, I mean, they're just, it's in our mindset to be aware and, and proactive in these in these ways. So, um, yeah, it's uh, certainly the right time to, to try to advance this. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a good thing. And, and a lot of, I think, just the way the world has evolved, like we're less worried about 
everyone struggles economically and, you know, everyone works hard to make money and all that stuff. But like, there's, there's a lot less people who are like the, the immigrant generation to North America, whereas like, Hey, we, you know, we had no skills. We came to this country with no money, no language. We had to dig ditches for, for like, you know, a dollar a week. And like, we don't really, a lot of anyone listening to this, like most likely you're not in that situation. So we have more time freedom to like actually consider these things. Like my grandparents never thought about their health until they were unhealthy because that was their life. And that was the life of a lot of elderly people who are now, you know, having having issues as they age but we have the the, the we're blessed to be able to to, yeah. to worry about these things now right mm-hmm. yeah yeah very good dr shaw um i want to be respectful of your time i know we're kind of cutting it cutting it a little bit close here um is there anything else that you want to mention or that you think that we've left out that you feel is important to to say today before we wrap up um, no, I think that main, mainly just to reiterate that just from, for people's understanding, like that our perspective and, and it is scientifically true that, you know, looking at blood pressure for the long period of time and consistently is really what I think makes the most difference or could make the most difference for an individual. And no, and then the only other thing is that, you know, hopefully we'll be available in Canada in the next year. We are available across the EU and UK already um commercially so uh you know and you, people can find us on our website at actia.com all social media channels and at at actia global and certainly you can connect with me on linkedin if there's anyone of interest perfect i'll definitely put all that in the in the show and so people can kind of stay tuned and whatnot and if you're outside of canada then you know it may maybe already be available to you and if not then you know soon soon it will come when it is available in canada i don't know if you know this because obviously there's legal implications mm-hmm. and stuff like this will it be just like anyone can buy it commercially i can go to the website click it order it and i get it or do you have to go through a doctor how will it work no it's not prescription based um so our current channel we have a direct-to-consumer channel um so you can buy directly from our website and then we also have uh, structured uh, co- commercial deals with, uh, healthcare organizations where we're deploying it across larger range of population for their specific use. That's, that's sort of a different channel. But so for, for, you know, the regular person, it'd be the direct to consumer channel. Got it. Yeah. Most successful. And I think that's, you know, prob- probably best all, all around. So thank you very much, uh, for, for your time. Um, Dr. Jay, Jay Shaw, everybody, uh, I'll put the contact info in the show notes check out actia and um and that's that thanks for listening appreciate you give us all a follow share subscribe the episode five star reviews all that stuff helps everything grow and helps everyone get the message out um go outside be a good person we'll chat soon